Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. January 6th started off pretty much like any other day. It wasn't until I started listening to the speeches that I felt that day was going to be a bad day. You have to show strength, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. The new year is apparently beginning with massive apprehension, as the January 6th one-year anniversary of the storming of the U.S. Capitol takes place this week and with government anticipation of possible new assaults on Capitol Hill, with concurrent mass protests around the country denouncing what took place. Likewise, reported as the congressional panel continues investigating in a more public phase a pursuit of charges and indictments, is mobilization of special forces deployed in D.C. for the anniversary with heavily armed FBI, U.S. Marshal, and ATF forces training the prior weekend at the FBI's Quantico, Virginia base, and with shoot-to-kill authority. In this tense beginning to the new year, Jamie Roberts phones in from London to talk about his documentary, Four Hours at the Capitol, and beyond. Roberts, the director of the documentary Exposés, The Rise of the Murdoch Dynasty, Fires That Foretold Grenfell, Manchester, and the night of the bomb, delves into how it all happened and why, and from an outsider looking in British point of view that is neither Democrat nor Republican. And he delves into how it all happened and why, along with a psychological dissection of how mass psychology works, quote, how a handful, a small number of very violent agitators can create a kind of mob psychology that works as people follow them and just get caught up in the moment. First, some scenes from four hours at the Capitol, then Jamie Roberts. I work in what should be one of the most secure buildings in the whole world. It just never occurred to me that a mob would get into the Capitol building. When you really believe a tyrannical government is taking over the country, you're going to have some crazy stuff go down. It was soccer bombs, truck drivers. It was America. People with pitchforks, baseball bats sticking out of their bag. People in full, like, tactical outfits. Pepper spray started coming out. Gas grenades started going off. It just broke into pure anarchy. Individuals themselves aren't usually a problem. But when they get together and they create a mob, The mob is the weapon. To hear the radio transmissions is very chilling. 13 hours, capital has been breached. I had all these thoughts in my mind, like, could there be a shootout on the United States Senate floor? Everybody was making a call to someone, the last phone call. I just started to pray. I have literally bled for this country in combat. And they were all yelling, you're traitors to your oath, enemy of the people. It was like, how dare you? They wanted to stop this election. If we were in the way, they were going to kill us to do it. I didn't think I was going to go home that day. Communications in line with combat. I just watched her her life drain right out of her eyes. 40 or 50 officers battling 15,000 people. I've been a police officer for two decades. A mob grabbed him. He was having difficulty breathing. You don't have to take my word for it. Watch my body-worn camera footage. Peaceful patriots. Started getting tased at the base of my skull. Very frightening situation. Kill him with his gun. Pure chaos. He has raised his edge. Heart attack. Traumatic brain injury. Take away their weapon. I just... I still haven't made sense of it. Hi, Prairie. How are you doing? Hello. How are you? And welcome to our show. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on. Sure. 
What led you to want to go make this documentary here in another country as a British filmmaker? Um, I think, uh, well, I've been actually looking at... Um, we, we make films in the U.S. quite often uh, here in uh, Amos Pictures, um, production company I work at, and uh, I was actually working on a, a U.S.-focused um, film that kind of was looking around around a similar area, so there were kind of fault lines in U.S. politics. And, um, you know, the day of January the 6th, I was in the office with the executive producer, Dan Reed, and we watched what was happening at the Capitol, and quite a, a number of the people that we'd actually been speaking to were actually on the ground and filming and some were even in the building on the day and we just instantly thought this is the story that we should be looking at and, and there needs to be a film about this. So really that was that was what sparked it. And where are you calling from? At the moment I'm in London. Oh, okay. Now you seem pretty close to the violence going on. Were you ever in danger? And how did you keep from becoming that subject yourself? Uh, so the actual, the film itself is actually made up of... Um, we gathered uh, thousands of hours of material from people, um, CCTV, oh. body cam from police, the people that were actually there. So I was actually in London when it was happening. Oh. Um, I mean, I have covered violence before and um, been to conflict zones, but really this was, something, this was a retrospective story for us. So really the challenge was to um, go and find all the people that we, that we thought were there at an important moment and sit down and... and um, listen to their experiences and, and gather their stories. So that was rioters, police officers, staffers, um, members of Congress. And then really we wanted to put the film together in a really clear-eyed way um, so, so someone who wasn't there could really understand what happened. Was there anything you experienced that day that surprised you or changed any preconceived notions you brought in with you? Um, I think that... I mean, there were surprises throughout. I mean, the level of violence I did think was shocking and there was violence that I didn't know that had happened that we show in the film. Uh, you know, there's material of one of the police officers when he's being tased that we managed to find and, and other moments of, of violence, which is just, you know, it's horrific. It's sickening. I think after the event, in the months after the event, you know, there's various people, including President Trump, have tried to downplay it. I think President Trump himself said that people were in there hugging and kissing with the guards. Um, you know, we spoke to the guards and the police officers were there and it was plain that there was a lot more than hugging and kissing going on. And, and really, we wanted uh, an impartial, independent um, uh, retelling of this story. So there is a document for people if they want to want to go back and actually remind themselves of what uh, of what's happened after all the kind of political discourse that's happened in between, then hopefully this film is that. And what have you seen as the outsider looking in perspective the advantages of that and also the challenges in contrast to a U.S. filmmaker with a more subjective perspective. Yeah, that was something that we were quite um, conscious of from the start. Uh, I mean, I think one of the benefits for us is that, you know, U.S. politics right now is, is very um, extremely polarized. And if, uh, if you approach, I think if, if you're approaching this subject and speaking to either members of Congress or um, you know, some of the protests were on January the 6th, or immediately before you already start, you're kind of seen to have, have having taken a side just because that's it. That's the way things are at the moment. And I think for us Brits, we can, you know, we're not coming to it as voters of either party. Uh, we are literally coming to it from a from a, a neutral perspective to find out what happened. And I think that actually did help us because I think people were. Um, you know, some people don't want to talk about certain things, but it definitely meant that there wasn't a suspicion from the off uh, or less of a suspicion from the off for, from people because I think they understood that, you know, we're not batting for uh, the Democrats or the Republicans. Or, you know, we're not Trump supporters or we're not Trump naysayers. We're coming over from the UK interested in this story because also the themes speak to what's happening in the UK right now and, and, and throughout Europe. Now, at one point, it's remarked that many of these people storming the Capitol were just soccer moms or truck drivers. Did you come to distinguish the extremists in any way from just masses of angry people? And if angry, was it about anything more than the election, especially during this period of a pandemic lockdown and that other chaos going down? Yeah, so I think um, uh, we, you know, there's 15,000 people that were descended on the Capitol. I think there was even more up at the... Um, up the ellipse watching the, the speech of President Trump. And it was very clear that, um, you know, a lot of 
that this wasn't 15,000 people that were all committing violence. This was a, a varied group of people. And there, there were definitely, I think, what was interesting and quite surprising, that the, the, the day really demonstrated what a handful, a small number of very violent kind of agitators, uh, the way that they can, um, they, they, they can then uh, lead a mob uh, and create a kind of mob psychology, which is what took hold on the day, and then and then lead to much more violence. So I think in the in the film and in some of the people we speak to, you know, there are individuals and groups that are definitely at the forefront of the violence, and then there's people that followed in behind them, kind of just either caught up in the moment or following in because they thought that they were going to occupy the building or a whole spectrum of of beliefs. And I think we've we've sat down with a lot of the you know, with a number of rioters and protesters and really tried to kind of understand what their motivation was and, and why they're entering the building. Because, you know, some people there, they're QAnon followers, the conspiracy theorists. Uh, some people are, you know, Republicans and they're, they're diehard Republicans and they just were there because Donald Trump, they feel, told them to go and, and they were doing the right thing because they felt the election was stolen. Uh, obviously, there's no evidence for that, um, and uh, I think police officers and, and members of Congress give uh, give the other side of that argument. And since you're over there in London, can you give us a perspective about what's going down with the protests there right now in the UK and with the new surge in the pandemic, the shortages and the energy crisis? Anything to share about that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very it's a very time so. I think actually when it comes to COVID here, um, it was a very difficult time for a long time, maybe not dissimilar to what happened in New York in the States. But right now, I think quite a lot of anti-vaccination uh, protests and there's a, uh, there, is, there is trouble with that in some of the demonstrations. Well, I hear there's a new surge in the pandemic and people are lining up at hospitals to get help. I think the thing is, these, these reports are kind of patchy. So there, there's surges, but often because the government... And, um, the National Health Service have become very sensitive about this now because I think the handling was particularly poor previously, that any surge that seemed to come on the radar is then taken very seriously. I actually think the thing that's immediately affecting people in the UK right now are the fuel shortages and the food shortages, which are due to, I think, in part Brexit and also in part because of the global supply network has started to uh, fail. And do you have any final thoughts and what you'd like viewers to understand about your film and also about what you feel was going on that day. I think I'm, I would really want people to understand just how serious that day was. And, um, and really, to whatever you think about the day, you know, please do watch the film because I think it takes you into it on a, on a ground level, an experiential view of what happened in a way that you won't have seen before and will really help you understand how things played out, you know, how people came to lose their lives. And um, and what the significance of this is, because there's a you know there's still um, legal wranglings happening around this. President Trump uh, is, is sued the head of the commission, mm-hmm. um, and you know it's going to run and run. And I think it's important not to actually forget that this was all about one day on January the sixth, around four hours, and it's the actions that took place in that window. So it's important to kind of remember what did happen at the Capitol, rather than all the political rhetoric and conversations that happened after. And what do you think is going on now where they're so quiet, like nothing ever happened, and they called a follow-up protest and nobody showed up, and there was such tremendous masses of people there. So what do you think happened? I think, well, there's, I think there's a, around 650 people have been arrested. And like I said, you know, there were antagonists within on-the-ground agitators, and a lot of the people who were on the very forefront have been arrested. But also, I think on a on a leadership level, you know, there was people who were involved in politics and public life who were calling for the events on January the 6th. And I think those people have gone very, very quiet because mm. not least because they're worried, very worried about being investigated by the FBI and, you know, possibly taken to jail. Yeah. OK, thank you, Jamie Roberts, for calling into our show. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye bye. And for Hours at the Capitol is an HBO production. And now on Arts Express, bro on the global television beat, Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro's deep dive year-end episode two wrap-up report into the new year, the best and worst, and what to watch online or not. 
and, quote, representation of working class desperation, as television allows, with a focus on race and class disparities that may force series to foreground these tensions. This year's Top 40 serial TV series unfolds against a background of continually rising inequality. Top 20, The Wonder Years, is ABC series masterfully written by Saladin K. Patterson. While posing as a simple remake of the 80s show, in effect, expands the range of content the sitcom is capable of handling. Set in 1968, the show about a black middle-class family is alive with all the tensions of that era. The lead teenage boy's father is a black nationalist, his brother is a soldier in the Vietnam War, and his sister is part debutante, but also part budding Black Panther supporter who trades her SAT study manual for Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice. The pilot, skillfully directed by the 80s series lead actor Fred Savage, has a black-white baseball feud interrupted by the murder of Martin Luther King in a crossing of the typical teen coming-of-age story with a tale about the dawning of political consciousness. Dopesick with Crime of the Century. Dopesick, the fictional series, documents the spread of Oxycontin in the Appalachian population, a group of workers that will become redundant as coal disappears and now consigned to death by overdose. Michael Keaton is particularly effective as a country doctor who could have become a Disney-type wise old salt, but who instead undergoes a painful metamorphosis. Meanwhile, two dogged state prosecutors attempt to sound the alarm while the Sackler scion first pushes the drug and in a final cowardly act attempts to remove the family wealth from any financial liability. Alex Gibney's two-part doc on the creation and pharmaceutical labs of Oxycontin and its even more deadly cousin fentanyl follows with almost fictional intensity the two creators as they market their deadly product, concerned only with their own profit margins. Goliath Season 4. Last season for this series, about an alcoholic but crusading lawyer played impeccably by Billy Bob Thornton, is short on the personal peccadilloes of the character, which became a drag in Seasons 2 and 3, and long on the struggle to bring a drug company, again in the Sackler Purdue Farm of Vain, to task. David E. Kelly's trademark courtroom reversals and heroics here in the service of proving that the drug company was not in the business of easing pain, but rather, as Thornton's lawyer claims, in the much more profitable business of promoting addiction. The White Lotus. The pilot of this series about privileged tourists lavishing and lording it over still colonized Hawaiian natives was the best hour of television this season. It featured a pregnant worker in the hotel forced to give birth in a back office because she was afraid to leave her job for fear of being fired, while a honeymoon couple complained about not getting the best suite. There was never anything as powerful as the first hour, but Mike White's HBO series still unerringly kept the focus on race and class disparities in the way that may force other series to foreground these tensions, and that showed up series, like Nine Perfect Strangers, that didn't. Thin Ice, this Swedish series available on Amazon Prime set at a climate conference in Greenland was the best political thriller of the year. It centers on the exploitation of the Arctic as a way of profiting from global warming. The series cannily encompasses the indigenous question in Greenland, Danish profiting from its control over the landmass, and Russian, U.S., and Nordic jockeying for position to mine the area and control its seaways. The series initially focuses on Russia as the threat to Arctic harmony, but by the end works its way around to the greater threat, as we recall Donald Trump's offer to just buy Greenland. Tandav. The Indian series from Amazon, unlike fluff like Mira Nair's Netflix outing, A Suitable Boy, begins with a farmer's strike in Delhi at the moment when farmers were actually in the street protesting the Indian premier Modi's attempt to make their life more onerous so they would collapse and be absorbed by Indian agribusiness. The police, two roly-poly seemingly comic figures, then massacre the demonstrators while in the upper echelons of Indian society, a palace coup brings a conniving son to power in a critique of Modi-style neoliberalism that was rivaled in the film department by Netflix's equally vicious The White Tiger. Pros and Cons, this Danish series available on Amazon Prime, follows the exploits of two scam artists, Eric and Nina, who give up the game and instead go straight, only to find that their jobs either pay little or involve necessary sexual liaisons to get ahead. Overwhelmed with the daily pressure of making ends meet, they decide to return to scamming as the only way to partake of any of the wealth that they see all around them. As good a representation of the desperation of the Western capitalist working class as television allows. 
and a nicely done series of reversals as they strike pharmaceutical and cosmetics companies who are in the business themselves of scamming their customers. Wanted and the Unusual Suspects, two female revenge series from Australia, the first available on Netflix, the second on Hulu. Wanted is a more advanced Thelma and Louise, which emphasizes the class differences between two women on the run and the patriarchal web they're snared in as they are pursued by drug kingpins and corrupt cops. The second focuses on the high-end relationships between gated community privileged wives and their maids, as the two discover they have more in common than they think, as each are left high and dry by men who cheat them, and as they join forces to plan a heist to secure their future. The Unusual Suspects is also revealing about how much of the contemporary landscape is simply an advanced Ponzi scheme describing a society which, while once fraying at the edges, is now collapsing at the center. Germinal. In this year of Striketober and of Starbucks and Amazon unionizing, this French series available on Amazon Prime masterfully refashioned Zola's quintessential tale of a mining strike in a way that casts a long shadow over today's corporate landscape. The gray palette and earthly complex depiction of the strike, largely from the worker's perspective, returns this series to what the French do best a recounting of their own history in the line of the greatest of French series, En Village Francaise, and in direct contradiction to the airy transparency of their celebrated series, Call My Agent and Spiral. For Life, season two of this ABC series began with a bang as Aaron Wallace won his release from prison where he, like many black men, was incarcerated for a crime he did not commit. The show then falters as it focuses on the personal relationship between Wallace and his wife, but picks up momentum and becomes a series for the ages as it incorporates on the fly, almost as they are happening, two events. The first is the concealing of COVID deaths in prisons, which turn, because of the inattention and rapid spread of the virus, from detention cells to slaughterhouses. The second is now Prosecutor Wallace pursuing and placing on trial a cop in a Black Lives Matter plot that illustrates that serial TV can tackle current issues with an urgency that belies the usual use of the form to surround viewers with ever more hypermediatic and slick modes of endless referentiality. Can you say Fairfax? The reward for this trailblazing? The series was canceled. Mayor of Easton. Kate Winslet was astonishingly authentic in this HBO series about Winslet's detective, yes, tracking a murderer, but also confronted with a decaying situation of an American Rust Belt-type working class left for dead in a Pennsylvania mining and manufacturing town. The thickness of the web of relationships, both familial and communitarian, that Winslet's character encounters suggests that those relationships have not been entirely torn asunder by the economic devastation wrecked on them by American capital's flight to where it can extract lower wages. Jean Smart's cynical, but ultimately caring and supportive mother, was another revelation of this series. The Labyrinth of Peace. The series, the proud product of German, Swiss, and French public TV, and now on Netflix, charts the aftermath of World War II in Switzerland as a group of young Jewish refugees arrive in the country, welcomed in not for any authentic humanitarian purpose, because it will help ease the public relations problem of the country's close connection through its neutral banking system, with the Nazi hierarchy. The frisson, when one of the boys kisses the Swiss wife of an industrialist, helping out in what the boy describes as still a camp, and as both feel an attraction to each other, is just one of the stunning moments in this show which also charts Swiss laundering of money stolen from those in the Nazi prisons. Astounding contradictions abound in this stunning publicly financed answer to much private streaming mediocrity. Clean Break. This Irish series, streaming on Acorn, slowly, methodically, traces the increasing desperation and inability to alter his situation except through crime of a bankrupt car dealership owner whose upright, moralistic banker keeps tightening the screws on him and enjoying his misery. The small businessman's bad decisions and the corruption of all those around him describe a world where class contradictions are so acute as to make life impossible for all but those few who control the purse strings. Reservation Dogs, New Zealand's Maori, Tikawatiti's fractured sense of humor and pathos, so evident in the wondrous laying bare of the ignorance of xenophobia in Jojo Rabbit, guides this tale of four Native American teens on a res they are desperate to leave, but that keeps calling them to stay through its own little miracles. A Sioux warrior who helped vanquish Custer keeps appearing to one of them. A local cop calls the soda machine dispensing sugar to sedate them white man's bullets 
And in a stunning fantasy, the boy Bear's mother imagines the local Anglo doctor as the master of an Indian plantation with her as one of the slaves. In a later episode, the girl Willie Jack partakes of a hunting expedition with her father, which is in effect a memorial and remembrance for both of them of her dead brother. Small moments accumulate in this touching, tender, and witty description of the pain and triumph of Rez life today. Snowpiercer Season 2, sophomore outing of this Bong Joon-ho who did Parasite series about a train with the last survivors on Earth after a climate catastrophe, picks up after a revolution led by David Diggs' Detroit detective has overthrown the rigid class structure of the vehicle. Arriving to reinstill capitalist discipline is Sean Bean's Mr. Wilford, a neoliberal Richard Branson, Elon Musk type, whose contemporary quality drips from every corner of his mouth onto his fur coat. The Madame Audrey plays Ava Braun to Wilford's Fuhrer, who plans to retake his train with the aid of a Dr. Mengele-type scientific couple. The season is about laying bare the savagery that underlies the cult of the contemporary CEO. It couldn't be more relevant with Musk himself, who boasted about the coup in Bolivia to secure lithium for his company, named Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Bob Hart's Abishola, Season 2, The Comiskey Method, Season 3. CBS mainstay Chuck Lorre's best work in years is on these two series. The first continues to recount the middle-aged relationship of a sock executive and a Nigerian nurse in a way that expands on what, in season one, was an often too-sitcom cliched presentation of the Nigerian world, except for the lead character, Abishola. In this season, The Loneliness of Kimi, played by series co-creator Gina Yashire, Abishola's best friend, in a white world not of her making, comes touchingly to the forefront. The last season of The Kaminsky Method, a sitcom about aging, is fittingly about death, as two characters come to an end and as Michael Douglas's acting coach struggles with the finality of life in a way that is still often achingly funny. Home Before Dark, Season 2, this series, about a preteen crusading journalist in its sophomore outing, has Hildy tackling a company that has for years polluted her Washington state town and that affects her relationship with her grandfather directly. In this moment of the battle to keep Julian Assange from being turned over to the blindness of U.S. justice for the crime of revealing the empire's secrets, this series is again a refreshing fictional reminder of what journalism can be, as well as a riposte to Apple's mammoth budget celebration of the banality of the form in The Morning Show. Back to Life Season 2, second season of this Daisy Haggard, she of episodes, BBC series streaming on Showtime has Mimi, having returned from prison, this time pursued by the sadistic police chief who is the father of the friend she unwittingly victimized. This show covers ground initially mapped out on the Sundance series Rectify, but with Haggard's humor intact as she battles to be recognized as someone who has paid her debt in an unforgiving and narrow-minded society. Bitter Daisies, second season of this Netflix series about a woman fighting back and trying to expose the systematic male power and brutality of a Galician town in Spain, culminates in an eyes-wide-shut party that results in a final revenge for multiple young and underage women exploited in a Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein mode. Season two does partially partake in a voyeuristic pleasure in this forced copulation, but its sharper edge still echoes forcefully and in so doing points out how another Spanish Netflix series hit Money Heist, which began in Spanish TV with so much potential, has, in its final season, substituted an ever-accelerating series of ever-more-meaningless shocks for what was initially a populist fantasy about returning wealth to the people. CB Strike. The heart of this series, based on the J.K. Rowling novels, is the relationship between the hobbling detective Strike and his one-time secretary, now partner Robin. The intrigues, often involving the crimes of state officials or wealthy families, take a back seat in this series to Robin's slow and painful coming to grips with the realization that the comfortable life offered to her by her corporate partner and soon-to-be husband does not make her happy. This lifestyle of the rich and privileged begins to exact more and more a burden on her as the series progresses and as she begins to question its value, a quandary that those still fortunate enough to have a job find themselves in today. The chair, Sandra O, oh, the put-upon government agent in Killing Eve, is ever more harried here as the newly appointed chair of a liberal arts English department that is, like most liberal arts disciplines, left for dead, surpassed by technical and business programs. The focus here is more on woke student culture and its challenge to aging professors. But the highlight of the series 
and why it shows up here in the top series is an appearance by David Duchovny as himself, playing an arrogant Hollywood author who supposes that academia is now simply another form of entertainment. It's this moment that enervates the series as it suggests that the neoliberalizing of the university has in fact resulted in its becoming just another receptacle for the treatise of pop culture. Honorable mention, comfortable as opposed to challenging TV, but nevertheless worth a look-see. Kung Fu, particularly strong in this CW martial arts series streaming on HBO Max, was episode five, which dealt with Asian bashing in the wake of Trump's Chinese COVID panic. The final moment, where the traditionally conservative mother and restaurant owner is converted to activism, offering herself up to be arrested to save an African-American protester as a particular free zone. Big Sky, the first half of this David E. Kelly ABC series was a stunning reversal of the usual powerlessness of the serial killer plot, with combinations of women of mixed races and sexual orientations fighting back. The second arc, involving the decaying head of a Montana ranch, was also powerful, but by the second season, the show had fallen into a more simplified, twisty tale that moved the series from groundbreaking to comfort TV, from a challenging series to one that is a guilty pleasure. Burden of Truth Season 4, a revival for this Canadian series streaming on Hulu, as former corporate lawyer Joanna defends a Native American woman who wages a lone battle against a mining company which plans to lay waste the town as her fellows urge her to take the money and run. The indigenous element enlivens multiple plot lines on the series and gives it a raison d'etre. Resident Alien, an alien apocalypse comedy set in small-town Colorado, streaming on YouTube, where the most enduring relationship is between the alien doctor, Firefly's Alan Tudyk, sent to destroy the Earth, and his Native American nurse office administrator, who teaches him what it means to be human, or rather, that all humans are not evil. WandaVision, most inventive Marvel series streaming on Disney+, Plus, with the whole history of the sitcom encompassed in its several episodes. A marvel of set design that still could have resounded more if it had increased the emphasis on the eerie emptiness of the form. The Vampires of Midland, Russian Dracula series available on Vimeo, that, rather than focus on the decadence of the genre in the now-departed Anne Rice Lestat mode, instead in a very Russian manner, centers on the warmth of all generations of a vampire family, which has ceased feasting on humans, but which is now prey to a predatory mercantile world surrounding them. The last socialist artifact, The Music Man meets Eisenstein's strike in this Croatian series, streaming on the French service Salto, about two bumbling entrepreneurs who attempt to restore a factory and a town long since given up for dead as part of the deindustrialization of Eastern Europe. Biohackers Season 2. The water's muddy a bit in this second outing for the Netflix German series, initially exploring the underside of biogenetic engineering with last season's scientist-slash-professor-slash-villainous, enlisted by Mia, the student who took her down, against an even more powerful and ruthless foe, the private financier of a pharmaceutical empire. The Upshaws. This Netflix series is a refreshing throwback to black working-class sitcoms like Sanford and Son and very alive with the self-deprecating but sustaining humor of its lead couple, a mechanic and a nurse battling to better themselves. The Walking Dead Season 11. Dynamite action opening of this last season of the perennial cable ratings leader has the newly returned Maggie leading a raid for supplies in an underground lair of the sleeping dead who, of course, waken. Final seasons, let alone an 11th season, are difficult to sustain. Just ask the creators of the overblown last season of Game of Thrones. But this one does it. With its perpetual focus on the characters, even as we watch successive invasions of Oxy and Fentanyl, plus COVID and its variants, turn hollowed-out Western democracies into zombie apocalypses that each day make the show less of a fantasy and more of a documentary. Five Worst Shows of the Year Rutherford Falls, comedy which gets the setup completely wrong as Ed Helms, a little bit of him went a long way on The Office, instead of being the Anglo-oppressor of the Native American community, becomes instead its defender, a chance for first-rate satire muffed and turned into ridiculous sentimentality. Bloodlands, psychotically reactionary BBC tripe from the network which brought you the equally conservative The Bodyguard and Line of Duty. What starts out as a twisty mystery circles back on itself and moves insufferably to a cynical conclusion which poses as ambiguous. 
Equally reprehensible was the BBC's Time, which regurgitated the worst prison cliches about guards who are victims of vicious prisoners without a thought about the cruelty of the system itself. Nine Perfect Strangers. In light of the spotlighting of class tensions, in the multi-character The White Lotus, this David E. Kelly series, which sets out to spoof retreat centers, seems instead a highly irrelevant retrograde way of simply restoring a fixation on their privileged clientele. Chapelweight. The Shining meets Moby Dick as Adrian Brody's retired sea captain is haunted by and haunts a New England seafaring village. The floor of the old house, his family inhabits, creaks, and so does the rickety plot, as Stephen King's horror tales expose the wires that holds these rapidly aging contractions together, especially in light of the more socially relevant use of the genre by Jordan Peele in Get Out, Us, and Candyman. Foundation. The never-ending search for a sequel to Game of Thrones... Dune, Witcher, Wheel of Time, the now-canceled Game of Thrones prequel, reached a low point in this Apple Plus high-budget, low-energy adaptation of the Isaac Asimov novel, where the only hope to save an oligarchic inbred empire is by a technological fix, a la a new iteration of the iPhone or the iPad. Less than meets the eye, this pretentious series instead is more like 2001 A Space Odyssey, the podcast. Bonus worst or liver worst? On the Verge, the life, loves, and angst of upper-middle-class women in L.A. with nothing much at stake. When the going gets tough, they go to the beach or Rodeo Drive. The only thing they are on the verge of is a shopping spree. In this series, streaming on Netflix, it is really just much ado about spending. And this is Bro on the Global Television Beat, signing off and breaking glass for 2021. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with the Radio Drama Corner and a birthday tribute to Anton Chekhov, the Russian playwright and author born January 29, 1860, and considered one of the greatest writers ever. His short story, A Transgression, a satire touching on class divisions in society, read by the late esteemed stage and screen actor and director Michael Redgrave. A town official called Miguyev stopped at a telegraph post in the course of his evening walk and heaved a deep sigh. A week before, as he was returning home from his evening walk, he'd been overtaken at the same spot by his former housemaid, Anya, who said to him viciously, Wait a bit. I'll teach you to ruin innocent girls. I'll leave the baby at your door. And I'll have the law on you. And I'll tell your wife, too and she demanded that he should put 5,000 rubles into the bank in her name. Miguyev remembered it, heaved a sigh, and once more reproached himself with heartfelt repentance for the momentary infatuation which had caused him so much worry and misery. When he reached the bungalow, he sat down to rest on the doorstep. It was just ten o'clock, and a bit of the moon peeped out from behind the clouds. There was not a soul in the street, nor near the bungalows. The more elderly summer visitors were already going to bed, while some of the young ones were walking in the wood. Feeling in both his pockets for a match to light his cigarette, Miguyev brought his elbow into contact with something soft. He looked idly at his right elbow. His face was instantly contorted by a look of as much horror as though he'd seen a snake beside him. On the step, at the very door, lay a bundle. Something oblong in shape was wrapped up in something, judging by the feel of it, a wadded quilt. One end of the bundle was a little open, and the town official, putting in his hand, felt something damp and warm. He leapt to his feet in horror and looked about him like a criminal trying to escape from his warders. She's left it, he muttered wrathfully through his teeth, clenching his fists. Here it lies. Here it lies, my transgression. It, it, it's here. Oh, Lord. He was numb with terror, anger, shame. What was he to do now? What would his wife say if she found out? What would his colleagues at the office say? His excellency would be sure to dig him in the ribs, laugh and say, <laughs> I congratulate you. <laughs> Though your beard is grey, your heart is gay. <laughs> oh, you are a rogue, Semyon Arastovich. <laughs> 
The whole colony of summer visitors would know his secret now, and probably the respectable mothers of families would shut their doors to him. Such incidents always get into the papers, and the humble name of Miguyev would be published all over Russia. The middle window of the bungalow was open, and he could distinctly hear his wife, Vavara Filipovna, laying the table for supper. In the yard, close to the gate, Yamolov, the porter, was plaintively strumming on the balalaika. The baby had only to wake and begin to cry, and the secret would be discovered. Miguyev was conscious of an overwhelming desire to make haste. Hurry, hurry, he muttered, this minute before anyone sees, I'll... Carry it away and I'll lay it on somebody else's doorstep. Miguyev took the bundle in one hand and quietly, with a deliberate step to avoid awakening suspicion, went down the street. That's a wonderfully nasty situation, he thought, trying to seem unconcerned. A town official walking down the street with a baby. Oh, good heavens. If anyone sees me and guesses the truth, I'm done for. I'd better put it on this doorstep. No, no, no. Wait. The windows are open. Perhaps somebody's looking. Oh, what shall I do with it? Where shall I put it? Ah, I know. I'll take it to the merchant, Mielkins. Merchants are rich and tender-hearted people. It's quite likely they'll say thank you and adopt it. And Miguyev made up his mind to take the baby to Mielkins, although the merchant's villa was close to the river, quite some way off. I hope it doesn't begin screaming or wriggle out of the bundle, thought the town official. And yet, this is really rather nice, you know. Here am I, carrying a human being under my arm, as though it were a portfolio. A human being, alive, with, with soul, with, with feelings, like anyone else. If, by good luck, the Mielkins adopt him, he, he may turn out somebody. Maybe he'll become a professor, a great general, an author. Oh, anything may happen. And now here am I, carrying him under my arm like a bundle of rubbish. And perhaps in 30 or 40 years, I may not be permitted even to sit down in his presence. As Miguyev was walking along a narrow, deserted alley, beside a long row of fences, in the thick black shade of the lime trees, it suddenly struck him that what he was doing was very cruel, criminal. How mean it is, really. So mean that one can't imagine anything meaner. Why are we carting this poor baby from door to door? It's not its fault that it's been born. It's done no harm. We are scoundrels. We have our fun and the innocent babies have to pay the penalty. Only to think of all this wretched business... I've done wrong, and the child has a cruel fate before it. Now, if I lay it at the Mielkin's door, they'll, they'll send it to the foundling hospital, and there it'll grow up among strangers in, in a dull routine. No love, no warmth, no spoiling. And then he'll take to drink. We'll learn to use filthy language. He'll starve, go hungry, be a cheap shoemaker. And he, my son the son of a town official of good family. He's my flesh and blood. Miguyev came out of the shade of the lime trees into the bright moonlight of the open road, and opening the bundle, he looked at the baby. Oh, asleep. Oh, you little rascal. Why, you've got a nose like your father's. He sleeps, and he doesn't feel that it's his father looking at him, his own father. It's a drama, my boy. Well, well, you must forgive me. Forgive me, old boy. It seems it's your fate. The town official blinked, and his cheek quivered. He wrapped up the baby, put him under his arm, and strode on. All the way to the Mielkin's villa, his brain was in a whirl, and conscience was gnawing at him. If I were a decent, honest man, I should damn everything go with this baby to Varvara Filipovna and fall on my knees before her and say, forgive me, I've sinned, torture me, but we won't ruin an innocent child. We have no children, let us adopt him. She's a good sort, she'd consent, and then my child would be with me. 
He reached the Mielkin's villa and stood still, hesitating. He imagined himself in the parlor at home, sitting reading the paper while a little boy with a nose like his played with the tassels of his dressing gown. At the same time, he could see in his mind's eye his winking colleagues and his excellency digging him in the ribs and guffawing. Besides the pricking of his conscience, there was something warm, sad, and tender in his heart. Cautiously, the town official laid the baby on the veranda step and waved his hand. Then again, he felt his cheeks quiver. Forgive me, old fellow. I'm a scoundrel. Don't remember evil against me. He stepped back, but immediately cleared his throat resolutely and said, Oh, come what will. Damn it all, I'll take him and let people say what they like. Miguyev took the baby and strode rapidly back. Let them say what they like. I'll go at once, fall on my knees, and I'll say, Pavara Filipovna, you're a good sort. She'll understand, and we'll bring him up. And if it's a boy, we'll call him Vladimir. And if it's a girl, we'll call her Pavara. Anyway, it'll be a comfort in our old age. And that's what he did, weeping and almost faint with shame and terror, Full of hope and vague rapture, he went into his bungalow, went up to his wife, and fell on his knees before her. Varvara Filipovna, he said with a sob and laid the baby on the floor. Hear me before you punish me. I have sinned. This is my child. You remember Anya? Well, it was the devil drove me to it. And almost unconscious with shame and terror, he jumped up without waiting for an answer and ran out into the open air as though he'd received a thrashing. I'll stay here outside till she calls me. I'll give her time to recover and to think it over. The porter, Yermolov, passed him with his balalaika, glanced at him and shrugged his shoulders. And a minute later, he passed him again, and again he shrugged his shoulders. Well, I never, he muttered, grinning. Aksinia, the washerwoman, was here just now, Semyon Arastovich. A silly woman put her baby down on the steps here. And, um, well, while she was indoors with me, um, someone took the baby and carried it off. Now, who'd have done a thing like that? What? What are you saying? shouted Miguyev at the top of his voice. Yamolov, interpreting his master's wrath in his own way, scratched his head and sighed. Um, I'm sorry, Semyon Arastovich, but it's it's the summer holidays. One can't can't get on without uh, well, without a woman. I mean, and glancing at his master's eyes, glaring at him with anger and astonishment, he cleared his throat guiltily and went on. <clears throat> it's a sin, of course, but there, what is one to do? You're forbidden us to have strangers in the house. I know, but we've none of our own now. When Anya was here, I had no women to see me, but I had one at home. But now, well, you can see for yourself, sir. One can't help having strangers. In Anya's time, of course, there was nothing irregular, because... Be off, you scoundrel! Miguyev shouted at him, stamping. And he went back into the room. Favara Filipovna amazed and wrathful, was sitting, as before, her tear-stained eyes fixed on the baby. There, there. There, there. Muguyev muttered with a pale face, twisting his lips into a smile. <laughs> it, it was a joke. It, it, it's not my baby. It's, it's the washerwoman's. I, <laughs> I was joking. Yes, it's Yamolov's, the porter's. Oh, Take it to him. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. And we'll end the show with music written and performed by an Arts Express listener to KCI Radio in Red River, New Mexico. Jake Harmon describes his musical inspiration as political songs that our injured world could use. 
and his music could be found on his YouTube channel, and this song is called Time Change. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. It's time for a change A change from the center A change in attitude It's time we made it better There's everything to lose This establishment has gotten out of hand With all too many trading life for the cash Liars that deal in death and destruction Acquire networks to conceal what they've done Their propaganda pleads through the wall HD Blocking our thoughts from true reality Take a stand, friends Save the planet Take a stand Take a stand There's work to be done Work to clean things up Work to shut things down Make it safe for everyone For the life all around Waters abroad once clear and clean to drink Toxified by Extraction industry Jet planes spew clouds Of lethal exhaust Getting fed dollars At the people's loss Governments that hide Corporate pollution Sponge killer money There's a solution Take a stand, friends Save the planet Take a stand Take a stand Leaders must be true And carry their weight Be partial to none And must always be brave For them the time has come Rulers of today Do it to get paid Chewing fat they discuss Ways to enslave These that burn and rape Their mother earth Think that they can gain Forgiveness with words This deadly scourge can't Hold its position in a world of engaged citizens Take a stand, friends Save the planet Take a stand Take a stand